In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the following document began, stating, when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This document is the beginning of our Declaration of Independence, and in it we see a number of places where there's a reference to nature's God and our creator. Our nation was founded on the principle and on the truth of God as our creator and a conviction that faith and God are central to our lives. But is that still true today within our country? I want to admit to you that we have drifted further from God as a nation as opposed to drawing closer to him. We see this evidenced in a lot of different areas. We see it evidenced in places where prayer and God have been taken out of schools. We see it evidenced in situations where there's debate as to our uh, wording within our Pledge of Allegiance. We see it evidenced whenever there's discussion around a nativity scene or a list of the Ten Commandments in a public space. We see it evidenced in our media. Sunday school, a couple of months ago, we were having a discussion around this, and what we see on television now that is commonplace 20, 30 years ago was appalling. We see immorality not just condoned but celebrated. We see a dysfunctional family unit raised up and honored, and we laugh at that. And what is even more appalling is what we see today as commonplace, or I'm sorry, as appalling for the next generation will be commonplace. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this time this morning. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We ask that you would allow us to heed it, to hear it, and God, to follow where you would have us to go this morning. In your name, amen. The title of the message this morning is Culture, Community, or Christ. So we're going to dive in to each one of these for a period of time, and then at the end of each one, ask ourselves a question. I saw an article, actually about a month ago, as I was starting to think about this particular sermon, and uh, it really stuck out to me. It was an article that came up, it was a headline on Yahoo, when I went to Yahoo, it was one of the the headlines there, and I thought, you know, I'm going to go ahead and, and read this. Interestingly enough, what it talks about is the ref- it references Christianity in terms of our culture today. And the author refers to Christians as they. So there's already a little bit of an antagonistic nature and an antagonistic tone to the article, but I'm going to read, this is not the whole article, but just a little bit of it. For decades, they say, they have been steadily pushed to the sidelines of American life and have come under attack for their most deeply held beliefs born of their reading of scripture and their religious mandate to evangelize. The 1960s ban on prayer in public schools is still a fresh wound. Every legal challenge to a public nativity scene or Ten Commandments display is again marginalization. The Protestant majority that dominated American culture through the nation's history is now a Protestant minority. 
Their share of the population dipped below 50% sometime after 2008. Americans who say they have no ties to organized religion, now dubbed the nuns, quote-unquote, make up about 23% of the population just behind evangelicals who comprise about 25%, according to Pew Research. It's come to this. Many conservative Christians don't feel welcome in their own country. They say they are either mocked or erased in popular culture. One commenter said, when was the last time you saw an evangelical or conservative character portrayed positively on television? The idea of what we call biblical morality in our culture at large is completely laughed at and spurned as nonsense, said David Parrish, a former pastor at Christian Fellowship and the son of its founder. The church as an institution, as a public entity, we are moving more and more in conflict with the culture with other agendas. So we see that in our culture today, but is this all that different? from what Jesus experienced in his day? Well, maybe, maybe not. There was a ruling class. Actually, there were two ruling classes in Jesus' day in the New Testament. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And we hear about Jesus having conflict with these two groups, but there were differences between the two groups. And whenever you look into these, what you find out, the Sadducees were the wealthy. They were the aristocrats. They were the ones that actually sat in the majority of the 70 seats of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of that day. They fought to take what was set in Rome and establish that in Israel. From a religious standpoint, they held to the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they felt that those were true. Religiously speaking, in terms of some of their doctrine, they were a little bit off. First of all, they did not hold to an afterlife. They did not believe that there was an afterlife. And as such, they did not believe in a resurrection. Additionally, they did not believe that there was a spiritual realm. So there are no angels, no demons, no battles going on there. And fourthly, they were kind of self-sufficient. Actually, they were really self-sufficient to the point where they disregarded God's interaction in daily life from day to day. So that's the Sadducees. More, think of these guys more as politically oriented as opposed to religiously oriented, although they were religiously oriented too. Then you have the Pharisees. We read all the time about how Jesus condemns the Pharisees or he has discussions with them and puts them in their place. Well, the Pharisees were more of the commoners. They were middle class, they tended to be middle class businessmen who were maybe a little bit more religiously oriented than politically oriented, although they still held seats in the Sanhedrin, they just didn't have as many. But because they could relate to the common man, they actually had greater influence in the Sanhedrin. So you have the Sadducees that hold most of the seats, but they really don't have as much influence because the common man doesn't regard them. Whereas the commoners tended to side with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees had the ear of the common people, and they ultimately, even though they didn't have as much power in terms of the number of seats in the Sanhedrin, actually had greater levels of influence. The challenge around the Pharisees, they held to the word of God. They liked the printed word. But the problem is they held as much to tradition as they did to the printed word. So what they believed, even if it wasn't printed, they held to. And they taught tradition as being equivalent with the written word of God. Now, that being said, they did believe in the interaction on day-to-day, from, in day-to-day life of God. They held to an afterlife and the penalties and rewards that would 
be accompanying that. So therefore, they believed in a resurrection. And they did believe in a spiritual realm. They believed that there were angels and there were demons and that there was battle going on. Jesus comes in and has difficulty with both of these groups because they weren't true to the Word of God. And they weren't true to the spiritual component that Jesus was trying to teach them. So Jesus was at odds both with the political and the spiritual component of his day. Interestingly enough, the Pharisees and the Sadducees kind of butted heads too until it came to the desire to crucify Jesus. That's whenever they started to see eye to eye and be able to move forward together but in a little bit different light. The Sadducees were concerned about it because they didn't want word to get back to Rome that there were some problems or somebody speaking against some of the Roman law. Whereas the Pharisees saw that a little bit more in conjunction with, uh, with the religious beliefs and religious practices. So what does Jesus say about this? John chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus states, the world cannot hate you. Sorry, wrong one. There we go. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. So there was difficulty in the truth of what Jesus was bringing in his day. Just like there's difficulty and there's tension between the truth of the word of God and what we see in our culture. You know, we all had a choice this morning whenever we got up on what we were going to do, whether we were going to come to church or we were not going to come to church. And everybody that's here made the choice to come. Some of us might have wrestled with that a little bit. Others, it might have been relatively easy. Don't know what the situation was. But my question this morning is, our presence doesn't necessarily constitute a relationship. Being here is great, but God wants more. And we should desire more. Presence is a step, but God wants a relationship. When I was a junior in college, I, let me back step a, a minute or two here. I grew up in a home where Christian principles were instilled. The Bible was held as the truth of God. Uh, grew up in the church, and I'm very, very thankful for the opportunity to, to have been able to do that. I went away to college my junior year. I remember walking down the hallway of my dormitory and starting to just question Okay, is this really true? This thing that I believe, that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was nine years old, but this faith that I follow, is it really mine? Is it really truly what I'm committed to? Or is this something that was just passed down for me from generation to generation, and I've just adopted it? And I went through about a week of really deep, deep soul-searching. And I found a deeper relationship with God through that. A lot of us have had the privilege of being able to grow up in an atmosphere, in a family, in which a culture of Christ is part of that. And that's a gift. That is an incredible gift from God. But our question this morning around culture is my relationship with God, what I believe, is my faith based on that culture Or is it truly based on Christ? Is it truly based on what he's done? This morning, as Josh said, and has been referenced, we have have the first opportunity, and I don't, 
we've been here about four and a half years. I don't know if we've ever met together before that or not, but we have an opportunity here, at least for our experiences since we've been here, uh, to come together as a combined community. So I want to move now a little bit into community and talk about that. Combined worship service, purpose being to develop oneness within our congregation. Jesus, we know, prayed for that. We've heard that referenced a number of times from the pulpit here. We all bring our preferences. Preferences in terms of maybe even what time the service is, or preferences in terms of music, preferences in terms of who's speaking, and and all those kind of things. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with preferences. In fact, God has created us differently, and that's something that we want to be able to not just embrace, but enjoy from each other. The fact that God creates us differently and that we're not all the same. And so this morning, what I would encourage us to do over the course of these next eight weeks, there might be some songs that aren't quite my style, and maybe that first one was your style, maybe it wasn't your style. That's okay. But let's find a way to embrace what God wants to do within our congregation during the course of these next two months. I don't know what that is. And could he do it if we were still in separate services? Absolutely, without a doubt. God can do whatever he wants to do. But I can't help but think that there's a purpose behind why we're meeting together and he wants to do something here in us over the course of the next couple of months. You know, 1 Corinthians 9.25 talks about an incorruptible crown. And an incorruptible crown is for those who lead a disciplined life. And part of the discipline is following the commands that God gives us where we're supposed to esteem others better than ourselves. And so my encouragement for us this morning is to take our preferences and see as as best we can, set those to the side and let God speak and let God work through us, in us, and in our community. So if you would, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 2. Got it also there on the board. A little bit of background here in these verses, verses 42 to 47. This is referred to as the Fellowship of Believers. And it comes right after the day of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit was poured out and there were 3,000 souls that were added to the church that day. And we see here in verses 42 to 47, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what we see here in verse 42 are four specific things that the young believers that the early church devoted themselves to. Now, devoted, if you look up that word, devoted refers to a faithful adherence or a steadfast and single-minded fidelity. So they were really focused on attaining this and achieving this. They were focused on and faithful to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship with other believers. We're going to dig into that a little bit deeper. Breaking of bread, and this verse probably, that refers to the Lord's Supper. We see later in the text that they were in homes and having larger meals, but Here in verse 42, probably it refers to the Lord's Supper and then says the prayers. Well, we don't know exactly what those are, but probably some type of formal prayers uh, that potentially were both Christian and Jewish as well. So 
the reference there to devoting themselves to the fellowship. The word here is koinonia. And koinonia, the basic idea is sharing, but it's a little bit deeper than that. There's an intimacy that's involved here. And it's a unique sharing that Christians have, that we as Christians have with God and that we as Christians have with each other. And it might actually imply a little bit of vulnerability. A little bit beyond, hey, how was your hunting trip? A little bit beyond, hey, how was your week? A little bit beyond, hey, how's, how are the tomatoes doing in your garden? Those are all good things. There's nothing wrong with that, and that's part of establishing relationship. But koinonia has something a little bit deeper than that. And that's what these new believers were devoted to. True fellowship, I would suggest, focuses on God and brings us into a closer relationship with God. And as it brings us into a closer relationship with God, it brings us into a closer relationship with each other as well. There are a number of other uh, topics that are discussed in that, in that particular passage. We see in verse 43, all came upon every soul. Every soul. That's not just the believers. That's those that are outside the church too. Whenever they saw what was happening with the young believers, with the early church, they were in awe. Wonders and signs also being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. There's unity there. There's a oneness that is developing. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to everyone as anybody had need. This revolves around both our real estate and possessions. Whenever they saw a need, because they were so united in terms of purpose, they were willing to sell their possessions for the sake and the benefit of somebody else. They put others ahead of themselves quite frequently. Day by day, this is an everyday thing. They were in the temple and they broke bread together in their houses. So they had meals together. They had fellowship together. And we see that in 47 praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So where does the increase ultimately come from? It's God. God is the one that brings the increase. But it wasn't just the apostles' teaching that brought people to a saving knowledge and to an understanding of the truth. So many times we come to church and we wait for or we look for the message. Tim and Josh and the um, Uh, those that have had the opportunity to be able to bring messages, we look forward to those with anticipation. But it's not, what we see here in this passage is it's not just the teaching that brings people. It's all of the other things that bring people to Christ as well. We see here that a completeness of community involved a number of different things. It involved care for new believers, various elements of worship, evangelistic outreach, caring for the material needs of other people, a oneness in spirit, and a joyful, informal fellowship that just spontaneously sprouted up. Oh, to strive for that as a community. Community is and should be very important in our lives. God has created us to be social beings. He's created us to have community. But where do we place community? Is community what brings me here? Or is community an offshoot of what brings me here? Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear means to hold up, to support, to remain firm under a load. 
Hebrews 10.24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. These three, this is not all inclusive by any means, but these three verses talk about community. Talk about an active component in community. But that's not where our faith should lie. Our community should be an outpouring of where our faith is. But as we look at this, we also want to consider the fact that this is active. It's not a passive thing. Community is active for each one of us. Not something where we come and simply have an opportunity to, to enjoy the worship which we do, to enjoy the message when we have that opportunity as well, but also to actively engage and to encourage each other. So there was, uh, I, was I had the opportunity to attend a breakfast. It's been a couple of months ago now. Hope in the Marketplace. It's kind of, a, it's kind of similar to a Christian Businessmen's Association meeting. And actually several of us from the congregation were able to attend that too. And Daryl Heyman shared a testimony there. One of the other ladies that was there that shared a testimony, she's actually the president of a financial consulting group. But I found this really, really interesting. She came out and she shared that she grew up in a Presbyterian home, uh, in the Presbyterian church. Her mom had her at church all the time. From the time she was a child, she was there for Sunday school. She was there for church. They were there for additional uh, activities. She as she developed, she got into, the, the, um, uh, into junior high and into the youth program, loved going to church, loved the friends that she made, enjoyed the community that she had. She talked about how she learned while she was there. That carried out all through high school, and she, she shared that this was one of the highlights of the time that she was in high school, this community that she had within her church. And then she went away to college. She went away to college. And she shares... She shared how she got completely away from God because her faith was built on her community. And when that community was taken away and removed, she had no foundation. So she didn't have anything to stand on. And she shared how she got away, made, made some pretty difficult decisions, made some wrong decisions, really got away from God. She graduated from college, went into uh, some business, and ultimately, it was really interesting to see how God brought her back. She was asked to coordinate a couple's business retreat on a weekend, and so she did that. And then as she was involved with this, she saw the interaction between these Christian couples and actually desired that, desired what they had in terms of their authenticity with each other. And God then brought her back to a real faith in him. Interestingly, her faith originally was built on community, and when community was taken away, she didn't have a foundation. But it was through community that God brought her back, and then she actually developed some saving faith. 1 John 1.7 states, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Community is important. Jesus shows us that by example. He surrounded himself with community. The apostles were a community to Jesus. But this morning, where does my community stand? Is my faith built on my community or is my community built around my faith? So our third option this morning in this sermon, culture, community, or Christ, we're going to talk about Christ. Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, 
so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul goes and says, if I can find any belonging to the way. Interestingly, in Acts, Christianity is referred to as the way a number of times. But as we look at this this morning, what is Christ the way to? Well, he's the way to a lot of things. First and foremost, if we look at Acts chapter 16, verse 17, he's the way to salvation. A little bit of background on this verse. Um, Luke, who is the author of Acts, joins Paul and Timothy, and they're on their way to a place of prayer, and a slave girl who is possessed with a demon shouts out to them. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Jesus is the way to salvation. Romans 3.17 and Ephesians 6.15 talk about peace. Romans 3.17 talks about the way of peace. And then Ephesians 6.15, in reference to the armor of God, talks about the gospel of peace. So he is the way to peace. Peace both within and without. Peace in my relationship with God and peace in my relationships with those around me. He is the author and the sustainer of peace. He's the way to purpose. He's the way to rest. He is the way to contentment. He is the way to freedom. He is the way to love. He is the way to joy. He is the way to meaningful relationships. He is the truth. He is the life. And he brings that to us. He is the way to a proper definition of our identity. Both our identity individually and our identity communally. He's also the way to transformation of our thoughts, motivations, and our lives. You know, we pray for change. A lot of times, we pray for change. You know, there are times we, we pray for change for other people for the sake of our benefit sometimes too. I remember early in our marriage, I used to pray that God would change Christine. And then I remember talking to somebody about that, and they said, Mike, you need to switch that a little bit, and you need to pray that God changes you, and that maybe you can see things in a little bit different light. But we do. We pray for change, and we pray for change for other people. We pray for change for people's hearts. We pray for change for our hearts and our attitudes and our perspectives. And those are all good things. But I wonder if God wants something more. You know, I looked up change, the word change. It occurs 51 times in the Old Testament, 27 times in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are references to change around wages, garments, minds, names, behavior, countenance. Here's an interesting one. Scent. Yeah, scent, aroma. Yeah, exactly. Uh, change of times, face, color, speech, shame, praise, um, shame into praise. A lot of references to change. In the New Testament, there aren't quite as many references to change. But we see the New Testament reference, change of mind, change minds, change customs, change of tone. We pray for change. But as I was looking at this, I started wondering, does God want to do more than just change us? And I think he does. I don't think he wants to just change us. I think he wants to transform us. A transformation has greater longevity. Change, I look at that as being temporary. Transformation is a little bit more permanent. I think God wants to transform us by redefining what we value, reprogramming how we think, 
and recreating who we are. So that we are more conformed to his image. He is the way to this transformation. But we've got to seek him. We've got to seek him individually, and we've got to seek him communally. So where are you today? Where is our faith? Is my faith anywhere other than Christ? Is it in community? Or is it in culture? The title of the sermon was Culture, Community, or Christ. But it doesn't have to be or. When Christ is at the head, community and culture become stronger. But he's got to be first. So as we close, we're going to ask us to do a couple of things. Corey's going to come back up. He's going to lead us in uh, a song. It's a little bit different rendition of the song that we, st- that we sang at the very beginning. And what I would ask us to do, he's going to sing a little bit at the beginning. And I would ask us just to take some time to reflect, to hear what God might be speaking to us this morning, if he's speaking anything. And then Corey's going to invite us to join him about midway through the song. And at that point, I would ask us to go ahead and stand and join Corey in that particular component of celebration. If Christ is the foundation, the culture and community will follow. If Christ is your foundation, what culture and community are we helping to create? Let's close in prayer and then we'll turn it over to Corey. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you for the culture that you allow us to create. We thank you for the community that you've given to us to be a part of. And Father, we thank you that you are first in our lives. And Father, as we seek you, God, let us find you. And Lord, as we try to listen to your voice this morning and heed your call, God, help us to have ears to hear and God, to be responsive to what it is that you would have us take out. We commit this time to you, God. We thank you for what you'll do. In your name, amen.